And today we wrap up our study on Advent, and we're going to be looking at the idea of Christ come as this king who is worthy. Now, because we don't have a king, it it creates a little bit of separation between us and them, and so I just want to kind of help us to understand kind of our context and and move into their context so this makes a little bit more sense. We don't have a king, we don't have a monarchy here in this country, and so we get to play a role in choosing our leaders, right? And so we get to cast our votes for a candidate. We can campaign for a candidate. We can give money for a candidate. And as we cast our votes, we are aligning ourselves with a political party, with an ideology, with a person. And so this is kind of how this works. Sometimes our candidate, sometimes the person we want to win does win, and, and sometimes the person we want to win doesn't win, and then sometimes we're faced with a choice, and, and we just kind of say, what is the lesser of two evils? And so we're, we're making decisions when we enter into that process, and in essence, we're asking the question, is this person worthy? Are they worthy to hold office? Are they worthy of my vote? Are they worthy of my contribution? Are they worthy? And in this question, we we find that the scriptures, too, give us the response of finding one who is worthy. In the very beginning of all things, God dwelt with humanity in in the gardens. You have Adam and Eve, and they're living in perfect harmony with God, communing with God. And there wasn't this question in their minds of, is God worthy? Because he's all that they knew. He's all that they experienced. And from this place of intimate connection and intimate union with God, they fractured their relationship with God on the basis of their sin. And so they're removed from the garden. And from this place, humanity set out repeatedly over and over, time and and again, to find a leader, to find a ruler that was worthy. Well, fast forward a number of years, and what we find is that God rescues and redeems his people from Israel, enslaved. And this group of people, as he's forming and he's fashioning them, he takes them through the wilderness, out of slavery, and into the promised land. And when they cross over the River Jordan, Joshua leads them in bold triumphantism. So they move into the land. And they have in Joshua one who is worthy, but from Joshua to Samuel, they're led by a series of judges. And as you read the book of Judges, you'll find that there are judges whose heart is close to God, and there are judges whose heart is anywhere but close to God. But 1 Samuel 8 rolls around, and what we see is that the people have lived in the land long enough, and they look at the Philistines, and they look at the Amalekites, and they look at the people around them, and one of the things that they find to be the continuous theme, this, this, this consistent pattern of all the nations around them, is that they were ruled and reigned by a king. And it strikes them and it engenders in them not this sense of pride, look at us, we're different, look at us, we're special, but it strikes them as a point of division, it strikes them as a point of inadequacy, and it strikes them that they are inferior. And so they go to Samuel, they go to this judge, they go to this man, this intermediary between them and God. And in 1 Samuel chapter 8, they go to him and they say, give us a king to judge us. Give us a king to judge us. Verse 4 of chapter 8 says, Then all the elders of Israel gathered together, and they came to Samuel at Ramah. And they said to him, Behold, you are old, and your sons do not walk in your ways. Now appoint for us a king to judge us like all the nations. So Samuel hears this, and his immediate response is, They're rejecting me, they're rejecting my rule. I've led you faithfully. I recognize 
that my children aren't walking in the same ways, but this is a rejection of me. That's how he took it. So the text tells us that this thing displeased Samuel when they said, give us a king to judge us. And so Samuel prayed to the Lord, and the Lord said to Samuel, now listen to this, obey the voice of the people in all that they say to you. So God hears Samuel. He hears Samuel's heart and this understanding, this idea, God, that they're rejecting me. And look what God says. They've not rejected you, but they have rejected me for being king over them. What they didn't realize, what they failed to appreciate, was that they had in God a king who is worthy. They didn't need to look like all the other nations. In fact, that was the point. That God didn't desire his people to blend in. He created his people to stand out. And in God, they had a king who is worthy and whose worth was unchallenged. So Samuel, taking the word of God, goes out and he begins to find the, the man that God's favor would rest upon. It says you continue to read in 1 Samuel, you come into chapter 9, and we find that, that God chooses and lets his favor rest upon a guy named Saul. Now, if you were to line up uh, 10 of us in this room and just kind of in any random order, and then you were to put in Saul as the 11th member of that panel, and I were to say to you, who deserves to be king? You would say, well, not you, slackers, it's clearly him. Not you, slackers, it's clearly him. And the text gives us a good reason for this. In 1 Samuel chapter 9, it says, There was not a man among the people of Israel more handsome than he. I'm sorry. From his shoulders upward, he was taller than any of the people. And so he looked like a king. He looked powerful. He looked mighty. He looked like somebody that when he picked up a sword, his enemies ran from him. And so they picked Saul. They wanted Saul, and their hearts leaned towards having this king who would fight their battles, this king who would devastate their enemies. But Saul is such a tragic tale. You see, Saul looked at the favor of God and the blessing of God as a gimmick to ensure victory. And so it's when Saul is told to wait for Samuel the prophet to come and to offer a sacrifice. He doesn't wait. He goes ahead and he jumps the gun and he offers a sacrifice because he sees that there's nothing special about God that he himself isn't able to interject and interrupt. And so he offers a sacrifice for himself. And when we pick up in, in 1 Samuel 13, in verse 13, it says, And Samuel said to Saul, You've done foolishly. You've not kept the command of the Lord your God, which he commanded you. For then the Lord would have established your kingdom over Israel forever. But listen to this. But now your kingdom shall not continue. For the Lord has sought out a man after his own heart. And the Lord has commanded him to be prince over his people. Because you have not kept what the Lord your God has commanded you. This gimmick, this trick that Saul thought that God's favor was contingent upon. He wasn't placing his full faith and trust in God, and as a result of his errant behavior and his actions, he reveals himself to be a king who is unworthy. So Samuel takes this to heart, and he, he begins to cry over the removal of the kingdom from Saul. And what we see is that, that God goes to Samuel, he says, why are you crying over Saul? He wasn't worthy. Why are you crying over this one? For I am searching for a king. I'm searching for one whose heart is dear to me. I'm searching for one who will be faithful to me. And so he sends him out and he tells him, I want you to go to Bethlehem. 
And I want you to find Jesse, and, and, and from his sons, this is where I'm going to take my king. And so it's this amazing tale of, of when he goes out, and, and Jesse causes his seven sons to walk past him. Now, now remember, Saul is heads and shoulders above everybody else. He's incredibly handsome. So Samuel has this mindset. And so the first son walks by, and Samuel's heart cries out and says, Surely this must be the king. Surely the Lord's anointed is before me. And the Lord said to Samuel, Do not look on his appearance, on the height of his stature, because I have rejected him. For the Lord does not see as, as man sees, but the Lord looks at the heart where man looks at an outward appearance. So seven sons, one at a time, coming by, and Samuel says, is this the one? No, it's not. Is this the one? No, it's not. Is this the one? No, it's not. So they reach the end of the processional, and Samuel turns to Jesse, and he says, hey, what's the deal? Do you have any more sons? These are strapping men. Like, these are some handsome fellas. But do you have anybody else? He says, oh, yeah, the youngest son. He's out tending the sheep. And what we come to find is this youngest son, this one who's described as being handsome, who's described as being ruddy and good-looking. God's favor, God's disposition rests upon him. His spirit rests upon him. And David would be the king who is worthy. And as David becomes king and, and solidifies the kingdom and grows the kingdom, what we see is that God's favor rests upon him even in the midst of his disappointments and even in the midst of his rebellion. And in the book of 2 Samuel, Chapter 7 and verses 12 through 17, we read these instructive words, the forming of the covenant with David. In essence, the promise that God makes to David that his kingdom would be uninterrupted, that the line, the succession of kings would pass down through David's line. Starting verse 12, he says, And when your days are fulfilled and you lie down with your fathers, I will raise up from your offspring after you who shall come from your body and I will establish his kingdom. He shall build a house for my name and I will establish a throne for his kingdom forever. So we begin to find that God, the man that God has found in David, it is through his line that we'll find this forever king who is forever worthy. And I will be to him a father and he will be to me a son. And when he commits iniquity, I will discipline him with the rod of men and the stripes of the son of men. But my steadfast love will not depart from him as I took it from Saul, whom I put away from before you. And your house and your kingdom shall be made sure forever before me. And your throne shall be established forever in accordance with all these words. And in accordance with all this vision, Nathan spoke to David. So we begin to see unrivaled prosperity come into the kingdom. We begin to see David expand the boundaries and make peace with those around him. Of course, the story of David is, is tragic as well. How he disobeys God. And then David's son Solomon is born. And Solomon, when he's granted any wish that he would like, he asks for wisdom. So God increases his riches and he pours upon his wisdom. But we see Solomon uses his wisdom for his own gain instead of for the blessing of God. Now from the time of Solomon all the way up into the exile, following Solomon, the kingdom is split. Solomon's son comes to reign, and he takes the advice of his friends over the advice of the elders, and the kingdom is split, Israel and Judah. And in the midst of, of these kings, roughly 20 kings from Rehoboam through the exile, what we find is the people are constantly, continually waiting once again for a king who would be worthy. And the prophet Isaiah the prophet Isaiah, roughly somewhere in the middle of this series of kings, begins to speak and begins to describe who would be worthy and who would be 
uh, the one man after God's own heart. And so he said these famous words in Isaiah chapter 9 and verse 6, For to us a child is born, to us a son is given. So he's describing this kingship language, And the government shall be upon his shoulder, and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God. Now they had, had this understanding that their kings had to be worthy, that their kings had to be wise, but look at the language, look at the terminology that he's using. Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the increase of his government and of peace, there will be no end. And on the throne of David and over his kingdom, to establish it, to uphold it with justice and with righteousness from this time forth and forevermore. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. So with every king, with every birth, there's this sense of expectation for to us a son is born. Behold, they're waiting for this to happen. They're, they're desirous for this to happen. And repeatedly, king after king after king, they're disappointed. They see sparks of positivity. They see a movement towards righteousness. They see a movement towards good things. But ultimately, their, their expectation is crushed. They are disappointed as they await this king who is worthy. So we begin to think of, of what it looks like for a king to be worthy. And so we've had Saul, who was heads and shoulders taller than everybody else. We had David, who was the youngest, the most unlikely. But Isaiah gives us a snapshot of what this king would look like. In Isaiah 53, 2, he says, For he grew up before him like a plant, and like a root out of dry ground. He had no form or majesty that we should look at him, no beauty that we should desire him. So he's giving us this indication that this king would not be something special to behold. He would not be something special to look at. He's not this guy that when you catch him and look at him, you say, oh, clearly this is the one. Clearly this is the king who is worthy. Clearly this is the one who's destined to be king. And even as we translate to the Gospels and we move into the New Testament, we have this understanding, we have this recognition that when God raises up a king who is worthy, he does it in the most unlikely of ways. We're all so incredibly intimately familiar with, with the birth story, with the story of Jesus. But I want us to just sit there for a second and just reflect on this. In Luke chapter 1, we see the, the account of the angel coming and speaking to Mary, this virgin betrothed to a man named Joseph. And what we see in starting in verse 31 is the angel is addressing her. He's told her not to be afraid that she has found favor with God. And he says, Behold, you will conceive in your womb and bear a son, and you will call his name Jesus. You will call his name Jesus. He will be great, and he will be called the Son of the Most High, and the Lord God will give to him the throne of his father, David. So we begin to recognize that this covenant spoken to David in 2 Samuel 7 is going to be true, and it's going to be true through the womb, through the birth of this man, Jesus. Born of the most unlikely of folks, Mary and Joseph. And the Lord God will give to him the throne of his father David, and he will reign over the house of Jacob forever. In his kingdom, there will be no end. He will be worthy. He will be righteous. This king who is coming and will reign. This is why when the Magi show up in the Gospel of Matthew and they, and they go to Herod and they're looking for 
the king of the Jews. He's not in the palace. Because the events that unfold in Luke chapter 2 take him to Bethlehem. And coming to Bethlehem, he's born in, in, in just a backwater. No special room is prepared for him. No special uh, reception awaits him. As we read a moment ago, as Jesse recounted for us, when the angels appear to the shepherds, that even in this, God is showing us that the one who would be worthy comes to those who society says is not. The one who would be worthy looks around society and isn't looking for the powerful. He's not looking for the mighty. He's not looking for the beautiful, but he's looking for the downtrodden. He's looking for the broken. He's looking for the one who's marginalized. So the angels appear to shepherds, and shepherds form and fashion this welcoming party. Shepherds who would be rejected by their society, looked down upon by those around them, are those who come and welcome Christ to the earth. This king who is worthy. And as Jesus grows up, and as he begins to teach, what we find is that he is close to the brokenhearted, that he is close to the downtrodden, but he is rejected by the religious establishment. He is rejected by the elite. People that have no sense of their need. People that have no sense of their need for a savior, and their need for a king who is worthy. They still want someone who is mighty, who wields a sword. So we ask this question, how does Jesus display his worth, and how does Jesus display his majesty? Is it through the stopping up of people speaking? Is it through this powerful display of his might? Is it through things like walking on water? Is it through raising people from the dead? How we see Jesus beautifully, perfectly, amazingly display his power and his majesty and how we see Jesus step in and become a king who is worthy is through his death. It's through his death. The one who is worthy died for those who are not. Paul beautifully records it in this hymn found in Philippians 2. He says, have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus. Listen to what he says about Jesus. Speaking of Jesus, he says, who though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped. When Jesus came in the flesh and he was born in a feed trough to lowly people, He chose to divest himself. He chose not to greedily hold on to all that was his by virtue of the fact that he is God. Paul goes on, he says, he emptied himself. This is this idea of of divesting his authority, of surrendering over his majesty, of, of becoming in this lowly estate. And he did it by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men and being found in human form. I want you to think, I want you to wrap your mind around the the beginnings of this idea of having unconstrained power and ability, of having unmatched majesty and willingly submitting it all to be trapped in flesh. This is what he did. It became an average-looking, an average-sounding, 
worthy king. The text tells us that he took on the likeness of men being found in human form. He humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. See, Paul wants us to understand that the way that Jesus served wasn't merely dying. It wasn't that he led this great rebellion and it went off course and he died as a result of a battle. Paul wants us to understand the wretchedness that Christ took on. He died in the most pitiable ways. He died in the most gruesome way that they could possibly imagine. He took on death. He allowed himself in his life to be surrendered, and he did it on a cross so that he might show his worth, so that he might show his majesty. Now listen to this. Paul does is he puts side by side this gruesomeness and the humiliation of Christ coming in the flesh with the exaltation, with the praise and adoration due his name on the basis of his course of action. And so on the one hand, we have Christ who was rejected, we have Christ who died on the cross, and then what we see is that what this resounds to him. Verse 9, it says, Therefore God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him a name that is above every name, so that the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth, and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. To the glory of the Father, this is how he becomes worthy. This is how he becomes worthy. Jesus didn't come to serve looking for the praise of man, but he came to serve so that he might be obedient to the Father. And what we continue to read and continue to understand is that the Bible tells us in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, 2 Corinthians chapter 5 and verse 21, it says, For our sake, for the sake of you and for the sake of me, he made him, he made Jesus, to be sin who knew no sin. Do you sense the importance there? Humanity has been in rebellion against God since we first committed sin with Adam and Eve in the garden. And on the basis of this, our relationship with God has been fractured. And in order to restore right relationship, fellowship with God, God sent his son Jesus to come and be born in lowly estate, a child of forced migration, a child stricken and rejected by men, but a perfect one who knew no sin, he knew no jealousy. He knew no hatred. He knew no malice. He knew no anger. And he became sin. He took on the very embodiment of the due punishment coming to you and coming to me. And this is what he did. He took him who knew no sin. And he made him to be sin. For what purpose? The Bible goes on and it tells us, this happened so that we might become the righteousness of God. God found us all unworthy. He found us all lowly shepherds wandering the hills, rejected by society, not esteemed by anyone, and he came near to us in the person of Jesus. 
the true beauty and majesty of the Christmas message. It's not just that he came, that he was this helpless babe laying in a manger, but that in the coming of Jesus forever after, the trajectory of our lives, the course of our lives, the direction of our lives could be changed if we confess that we are broken. Jesus speaking to those following him in Matthew chapter 11, did all come to him. He said, all ye who are, are heavy laden and burdened, come to me, for my burden is easy. My, my yoke is easy, my burden is light. Today, the greatest gift that any of us could receive at Christmas comes from a king who is infinitely worthy, and the gift that he gives to you is salvation, the forgiveness of your sins. Jesus didn't come, friends, so that we might have warm fuzzies at Christmas and exchange presents. Jesus came so that we might be forgiven our sins. In the giving of himself, he shows us to be a king who is worthy so that we who are not lay down our attempts to be, so that we might pursue him and receive something unimaginable, something so much greater than anything we could have set our hopes or dreams on. It's my prayer for us this Christmas season is that we would turn from pursuing things that are empty and worthless, the things of this world. And we would turn and begin to serve and follow a king who is worthy of our allegiance and a king who in his infinite worth poured out his life for your salvation and for mine. And now that is a Christmas worth celebrating. Let me pray for us. Father, you have made Jesus, your son, a king who is worthy, a king who is righteous, and a king who is worthy of all praise and adoration. You made him who knew no sin to be sin so that we might become the righteousness of God. Our lives changed and transformed forever based on the goodness and loving kindness of Jesus. Father God, I pray that you would instill in our hearts a love for your son Jesus. Father, I pray that you would instill in our hearts a recognition of his goodness come to us. Jesus, the helpless babe who came in flesh, Jesus, the man who poured out his life for the forgiveness of sins. God, cause us to rejoice and be glad in Jesus. We submit these things to you in his name. Amen.